Good morning. Welcome to Salem City Club. We sure miss seeing everybody in person. We hope you're doing well. And we hope you're finding a ways to keep yourself amused, like attending a City Club program. Thanks for coming. Uh, we want to thank our supporting business partners. That's uh, KMUZ Community Radio, Blue Jean Fulbert Graphic Design, Pioneer Trust Bank, Rich Duncan Construction, and Virgil T. Golden Funeral Homes. City Club is very grateful for our uh, members who have renewed their membership or given a donation this year. This is what keeps us going. So thank you very much. Um, we have a full set of programs planned for you this year, all designed to inform you and encourage civic discussion. And now for our, our program, I would like to introduce Hans West, who will tell you about the Senate candidates. Hans, good morning. Hi there. Good afternoon. <laughs> good afternoon, and good afternoon to all Salem City Club members who are viewing this, and to any guests, if, if we have any. I have not seen those numbers. Um, my name is Hans West, as mentioned, and I will be the moderator. We are lucky today to have the three candidates running for Senate District 10. Uh, this election, and they are, <coughs> excuse me, they are Senator Denise Bowles, Reverend De Deborah Patterson, and Taylor Rickey. Uh, I will shortly give you a short bio. I will give you a short bio on, on each one of them. Um, and um, I, yeah, well, let me start with Senator Bowles. Senator Bowles, could you turn on your video? Um, Denise Bowles <coughs> has served as state representative. Wait, whoop, wrong one, wrong one, excuse me. Too many papers here. Thought I typed that one up. Well, I can, oh, here it is. Okay, Senator Bowles <coughs> um, was appointed to fill the Senate seat uh, 10, um, Senate District 10 due to the death of Jackie Winters. Prior to that, she was appointed as a state representative in House District 19 on two separate occasions. And in 2018, she successfully ran for re-election in the fall of, of, of that year. Uh, she has owned and operated several small businesses, has served as staff on the Oregon, in the Oregon legislature and currently works in community relations for Salem Health. In the legislature, she serves on multiple committees, including the Full Ways and Means as vice chair and as vice chair of the Senate Committee on Mental Health and as Vice Chair of the Senate Committee on Housing and Development. And I would refer you to her website for further details on her biography. Um, due to time, I, I have had to abbreviate this a bit. Uh, next, uh, Deborah Patterson, could you please turn on your video? Okay, uh, the Reverend Deborah Patterson is an ordained Congregational Minister and currently serves at, as such at the Rural Congregational Church in Canby. She has a doctorate degree from the Eden Theological Seminary and has two master's degrees in music and health administration. She has a 20-year history of advocating and working for improved health care and education. She is currently chair of the Marion County Health Advisory Board and was recently appointed by Governor Brown to serve on the Oregon Disabilities Commission and the Oregon Nursing Home Administrators Board. She ran against Senator Jackie Winters in 2018 and was narrowly, narrowly defeated. Finally, we have Ricky Taylor, Taylor Ricky, excuse me, 
Can you, yeah, there he is. He's a political newcomer. As a libertarian, he believes in limited government and maximum freedom. His policy issues include criminal justice reform, reducing taxes and bridging the divide caused by Republicans and Democrats that, quote, has torn our communities apart, end quote. He attended Woodburn High School. Currently, he is a stay-at-home dad to his five-year-old son. Okay, uh, let me briefly explain the format to the attendees, I mean, excuse me, to the audience. Um, these <coughs> candidates will, will, for five minutes or perhaps less, give an opening statement, uh, all in turn, and thereafter the moderator, which is me, will give them, well, ask them a set of three questions, which they will all have a chance to answer. Uh, after that, they will have closing statement for roughly two minutes. And after that, we will have questions from the audience. Uh, and I would, I will say it now, I would encourage you when you have a question, please use the raise hand feature. Uh, since I have trifocals, it'll make it easier for me to keep, uh, keep everything under control, so, for me anyway. So uh, with that, uh, we will ask Senator Bowles to give her opening statement. And Great. We'll thank you, Hans, and thank you, Salem City Club and all the sponsors for providing this opportunity in this forum. So important for us as a community, even during these times, especially during these times, to come together and have uh, these kinds of conversations. So I appreciate it. I feel very lucky to have spent my, nearly my entire life in the Salem area. I'm a graduate of Sprague High School. Ultimately, I ended up getting married here, raised our three kids who had ended up attending the same public schools that me and my mm -hmm. husband attended. I started my career and I'm now honored to have the opportunity to represent this community as their mm -hmm. state senator in the Capitol. To this day, my family lives in the same South Salem house that I grew up in and I love this community and the people who live here. As a kid, like most of my friends, I grew up picking strawberries on our local fruit farms and learned the value of hard days work during graveyard shifts at the cannery in the summer. I've owned and operated several small businesses. I've served as a chief advisor to local elected leaders and currently work in community relations at Salem Health. For the past few years, I've been fortunate to serve first as a member of the Oregon House and now as a member of the Oregon State Senate. I've always been a problem solver, whether it's something that comes up in my professional life, in our community, or at home with my family, my instinct is to want to jump in and help solve it. This is a great set of skills to bring to the legislature. I think a lot of people in our community just want a few basic things from their government safe communities, strong schools, access to healthcare, jobs, and affordable cost of living. Senate District 10 isn't a hotbed of partisan politics, and I'm proud of that. The vast majority of our friends and neighbors want leaders who will use some common sense to improve this community, and that's the kind of leader that I've tried to be. I truly value my deep roots and shared values I learned in this community. These ideals inform each and every decision I make as your state senator. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Bowles. Uh, next, we will have uh, Deborah Patterson talking. Good afternoon, and thank you, Dr. West, and thank you to all the members of the Salem City Club um, and to our guests today for, and for the opportunity for all three of us candidates to be here with you today. It's so nice to see. I wish, I, when I wrote this, I was going to say it's nice to see you all today, but I can only see the panelists. I'm looking forward to when we can all be together again. Um, we've been through a lot 
in these last few months. And so it will be nice when we're, we're able to gather in person again. And of course, we hold the president and first lady in prayer, uh, along with all the others in this country and abroad who have COVID-19. Um, so first, let me tell you why I'm in this race. I've been a healthcare advocate for over 20 years, and I'm convinced that we need better healthcare for more people for less money. During those years, I led local and regional and international health organizations. For a decade, I was at the helm of a health organization that worked with more than 15,000 registered nurses worldwide to help people access care and have accurate health information. We need to help small business owners and others here to afford the health care that they need. I'm also a mom of two young adults, one with special needs, both of whom graduated from South Salem High School, and I'm running for an Oregon that leaves no one behind, and that includes seniors and people living with disabilities. I was honored to be appointed by Governor Brown to serve on the Oregon Disabilities Commission and by the Marion County Commissioners to serve as chair of the Marion County Health Advisory Board. Earlier, as vice president of a children's health philanthropy, I saw the racial disparities in healthcare outcomes, something we see clearly today with COVID-19 among black, indigenous, and people of color. I saw how important the social determinants of health are, access to a good education, safe housing, and clean air and water. We need strong schools, starting with universal pre-K, good after-school programs, and affordable college. We need to support other vocational training opportunities and apprenticeships as well. We need a range of housing options because we can't let people sleep on the streets. We need more services to help people who are exper experiencing addictions and mental illness, and, or mental illness, and as you do, I care deeply about the future for our children, so I know that we need clean energy jobs with living wages to help our environment. For nearly 30 years, I've been ordained congregational clergy serving urban, suburban, and rural congregations. I currently serve a rural congregation, as you know, here in the Valley. I grew up on a farm and I'm very comfortable bridging the divide between rural and urban communities because I've lived it and I continue to live it to this day. You can be sure that I'm also faithful and diligent about showing up for work and working across the aisle. And we must work together. I'm convinced that had the Oregon State Legislature worked together this past February, we would have taken more steps to prevent the type of wildfire damage we saw here this September. There were four bills to help address the risks of wildfires with $200 million in funding left on the table. I'm convinced that we would have had a more coordinated response to COVID had legislators worked together to plan for the pandemic. I'm convinced that if we had had the $50 million that was proposed then for programs to help people move off of the streets, including navigation centers, to help people rebuild their lives, then business owners and residents alike would have benefited from helping those who've been living downtown on the streets or in Wallace Marine Park and elsewhere. We simply must work together. I've run a strong race before, and I'm running a strong race again. 
I'm convinced that my proven record of leadership and my work experience make me the best candidate to represent the citizens of this district and to work for an Oregon that leaves no one behind. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Reverend Patterson. Uh, Taylor, Ricky, uh, could you please turn on your video? Your turn. Oh, we can't hear you. Sorry about that. Can you hear me now? Yes. All right. First off, I want to say thank you so much for having me, Hans. I really appreciate it. And to the Salem City Club. Um, my name is Taylor Ricky, and I am the Libertarian candidate for Oregon Senate District 10. Many people have um, preconceived notions of what a libertarian is, or they just don't know what a libertarian is. A libertarian is someone who believes in freedom and your rights, all of them. A libertarian is an advocate for small government and a defender of the greatest minority, the individual. I was born and raised in Flint, Michigan. However, for almost the last 20 years, I've considered myself a proud Oregonian. I went to Woodburn High School and I married my wife, Jennifer, in Pacific City. I'm a stay-at-home father to my son, Jace, as well as a stepfather to my three beautiful adult daughters. I'm running for, the Senate, for State Senate District 10 because I wanna fix the problems that Oregon faces, from overbearing tax burdens to government overreach and a broken criminal justice system. There are some very real problems that need to be addressed in Oregon. I wanna, <clears throat> sorry about that. <laughs> um, and they're just not being addressed by the two old parties that are more concerned with fighting each other than fighting for us Oregonians. Um, I want to just say thank you for having me again, and um, I'm not going to use near the five-minute mark, so um, I yield. Okay, well, uh, thank you, Taylor, for that. We'll now go to the questions from the moderator, and um, Deb uh, Patterson will take it first, and then Taylor, and then uh, the senator. Okay, so my first question is this. It's clear that forest fires are getting more severe and frequent. The cause for this is multifactorial. Drought, climate change, inappropriate timber and forestry management. Let me put on my video. Um, <clears throat> the growth of the urban-rural interface, weak building codes, etc. And we're just learning that down power lines likely were a big factor in the Santium fire. Which of these contributing factors do you think the Oregon legislature should take up to consider passing mitigative and adapt adaptive measures and why, both for the short term and the long term? Well, um, your question was, it was a wonderful question and it certainly addresses the different kinds of fire, wildfire um, causes that we saw this past season and that we're still uh, suffering from even today, looking out the window from the smoke that's blowing here from California. And we sure hold those folks in our, in our thoughts as well. And we also are grateful for the firefighters who are doing this and the many volunteers who showed up to help as well. So um, obviously we need to address this this huge issue on, on from every angle. Um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I do believe we need clean energy jobs as we transition to that sector to help protect the environment. We need to, um, as you mentioned, weak building codes. There, uh, for very minimal expense, houses can be made much more fire resistant um, and then more education. Uh, a recent Rotary program, or maybe it was a city club program, had a, a fire marshal come in and talk about the ways that one can 
protect the um, perimeter of their property by um, different practices in the way one landscapes and maintains the outsides of their buildings. Certainly we had warnings that these very high winds were coming recently down the canyon and down the gorge. Um, it may have been in the best interest of the uh, um, them to turn the power off and that certainly now it looks like it's the subject of many lawsuits. Um, I'm not trying to get involved in that whatsoever, but we have, we, there are no tools that we should leave at the table when we try to address um, wildfire um, prevention. And, and obviously we need good forest management. Oh, sorry, red flag, stopping, <laughs> thanks. Thank you. Taylor, your turn. Thank you. Uh, to expand on what Deb said, forest management is probably the single greatest thing that we can do. Um, underneath on our forest floors is dead timber and it's just a tinderbox waiting to explode. So what I would do is I would move forth in bringing sensible logging back and to clear the underbrush, clear the dead trees and replant. Um, I feel that is the most beneficial thing we can do to limit the severity of wildfires. They're a natural disaster. They do happen, but we do need to mitigate the damage by um, being responsible with our forests. There are forests, um, so we need to take care of them and not allow the dead trees at the bottom of the forest floors to burn. Um, climate change is a factor. Um, as uh, scientists agree. Um, so we need to address um, this. Sorry about that. Um, we do need to address this, uh, the rising climate by, but not by cap and trade or other, uh, other government interference, but maybe by encouraging green businesses to do so on their own as opposed to mandated by the government. And I thank you, Senator Bowles, your turn. Hey Hans, could you repeat the question really quick, please? Um, okay, it's, it's clear that forest fires are getting more severe and frequent. The cause for this is multifactorial. Drought, climate change, inappropriate timber and forestry management, the growth of the urban-rural interface, weak building codes, et cetera, are, are causative. And we're just learning that down power lines likely were a big factor in the Sanium fire. Which of these contributing factors do you think the Oregon legislature should take up to consider, to consider passing mitigative and adaptive measures and why, both for the short term and the long term? Great, thank you very much. What we've witnessed in this community in the last uh, several weeks has been some of the most difficult things I've ever seen. I have friends that have lost their homes. We all know people that have lost jobs. We've lost over 700 buildings up the canyon. So with regards to forest fires, that is a really complicated, complex solution to a complicated question, to a simple question. Um, we have federal lands that were right now federal policy and has been for for through Republican and Democrat administrations to just allow forests to burn. So what happened in the canyon is we had a, a forest fire that was burning on federal lands in the middle of August that was left to burn. 
and the policies around that need to be addressed. And I, I liken it to what happens in Oregon, where you have a center of Portland that's making decisions for the entire state. In the federal level, we have East Coast and that population center making decisions for the people in this community around a lifestyle they know nothing about. So that is step one. Step two is to allow a um, opportunity to clear out the underbrush, to um, get things so we don't have the hotness of the dead wood. Um, there's a lot of good forest practices that could help with that. Getting people who manage the land to the table to be able to understand it. And if it was simply around carbon and, um, and cap and trade solutions, why is uh, California burning so hot? They've had that in place for the last seven years. So I think that we need to get the people who understand how to manage a forest so we don't have this kind of um, example and situation in the future. So thanks. Thank you, Senator. Uh, my next question, and this will go to Taylor first and then to uh, Deb Patterson and then to the Senator. No, did I say that wrong? I think I said that right, didn't I? Okay, um, it appears that for now, the best way to control COVID is with measured and flexible public health measures, including masks, social distancing, limiting indoor group activities, groups, downgrading group sizes, worksite public health measures, etc. Do you agree that these measures are important and, and if so, which ones and why? Are you prepared to work with the governor on this and to pass legislative measures if needed? Absolutely. Um, COVID is, um, is a huge crisis, and I don't believe that any one-size-fits-all solution will fit every community, uh, whether that's from the federal level or the state level. I believe it needs to be handled by the communities. In District 10, what works for Salem isn't necessarily going to work for Turner or Almsville. It needs to be held, held by local leaders to decide what's best for their population and up to the individual, you know, if they feel wearing a mask protects them, you know, that's on, the, then they should have every right to wear a mask. Even if you don't feel like it's, a, if a mask will protect you, um, you shouldn't have to wear a mask. I don't think a one size fits all solution when it comes to COVID is the, is the right approach. So I would work with legislation to ease the government's mandates um, on masks and business closures and things like that, I would, I would ask her to let the communities decide what they want to do and let, leave it to the individual. Um, I just, I think it's not a governmental problem. It's a public health problem and it needs to be dealed with, dealt with um, in each community separately. Thank you. Thank you. And next, Senator Bowles. Thank you, Hans. The COVID situation that we've been in since uh, the beginning of March, at least publicly, has been one of the biggest challenges I think we faced as our, in our state. Uh, the impact that it has had on our economy, on our students, on our families, really on the mental health of each and every one of us has been extreme. I have been working with the governor and, um, and supportive of many of the policies that have been poured out in, in an effort to um, address this as, as a public health issue, to keep people safe, to make sure we take small steps in order to, um, to decrease the disease and the spread of disease. 
we have been fairly successful here in the state. We have pretty low rates of disease. We have managed to keep the hospitals from being overwhelmed and overrun, which was really the goal at the beginning of all of this. I think we need to start looking for ways to get back into the game. We need to jumpstart our economy. We need to figure out how to get kids back in school in a way that is safe and that covers best practices from a public health standpoint. And I think we can be creative in doing this. I believe that um, my frustration, quite honestly, has been, as Taylor mentioned, this top-down centralized system that doesn't take individual communities into context. And I think that, um, and really engaging all of us as people that want to protect our friends and neighbors, want to st stop the spread of disease, and want to get back to work. So I believe that um, policies going forward are ways for us in order to, um, to balance uh, this complicated situation, and I think that we can do that successfully as a community. Thanks. Thank you, Senator Bowles. Next, uh, Deb Patterson. Oops. Oh, sorry. Thank you. Um, related to the COVID public health crisis, I really truly believe that our federal response has been modeled at best and states were left on their own to figure out the best course of action to, um, to address the issue here, which we've known about here in Oregon since early February. Um, and as I mentioned before, I really do believe had we stayed um, and worked together, we would have had a better, be able to have a better response here. But yes, certainly I would work with the governor. I believe in science and the scientific evidence on what are the best practices in um, trying to prevent the spread of COVID uh, infections among people, masks, um, testing, contact tracing and isolation. And I will work with the governor and the Oregon Health Authority to try to get our our schools safely reopened as soon as possible because it's so hard on families right now. Par mothers are trying to work and they're trying to teach their kids from school. Some of the teachers have kids of their own at home who are school age. They're trying to teach other kids and help their own kids with online learning. We absolutely have to work together. And yes, I will be working with the govern governor and the Oregon Health Authority um, and the recommendations of um, the scientists who are helping us to, to do what we can to reopen our economy and our schools as soon as possible. Thank you. Um, the next question, and we will start with Senator Bowles. The next question is, and then uh, Taylor, what is your stance on the campaign finance ballot measure, number 107? Uh, and please tell us why this is your position. And if, uh, are you familiar with that one? I hope everybody is. If not, I can at least summarize what I know about it. Senator, are we ready? I'm to familiar with it. Does okay. anybody else have any questions? Okay, please go ahead. Okay. Well, I voted uh, to refer um, Measure 107 to the ballot twice, once as a um, House member and secondly as a Senator. So I think this is an important conversation that we have as a state. I think that there's a lot of things we can do to um, uh, around campaign finance. Uh, campaigns are ridiculously expensive and and I think that things that we can do to encourage transparency um, are important. And so I, I am supportive of this bill. Um, I think when we look at campaign finance, the trick is to make sure that as we do rulemaking and passing laws, that uh, there is not loopholes that benefit one party over another. 
And uh, so that's something that I'm always looking at. But conceptually, I think that we need to bring down the cost of bills of, or of um, campaigns. You know, it's expensive. For example, I'm going to be spending over $50,000 a week to defend myself against the hit ads that my opponent, Reverend Patterson, just put out on me. So um, that is the reality of our uh, conversation. And I think that it's better to be had when we can just sit down and at tables and, um, and make decisions together. So we'll see how this goes, but I think we should do some things in this state. We don't have very many limitations. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, next would be uh, Deb Patterson. Yes, thank you. Um, you know, I support Measure 107 because I do believe we need uh, campaign limits and we need transparency. Um, my name is on all of the materials that are coming out from my campaign. Um, I do know that my opponent, Senator Bowles, um, when she was in the House of Representatives, I mean, in the, uh, when she was a representative in the House, she voted against House Bill 2983, which required disclosure of organizations giving more than $50,000 um, for advertisements involving legislative candidates and uh, $250,000 for statewide races. And I do th think that we need to be very clear where money is coming from in races. So I am in favor of limits and transparency from all sources. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, Taylor, are you, are you ready? Absolutely, I'm ready. Um, Maybe it's because I'm third party. Um, it doesn't bother me much um, how much they spend on their campaigns. It, they don't have to be expensive. In fact, I've spent less than $500 on my campaign. I'm not going to have the TV ads that Denise Bowles or Senator Bowles and Reverend Patterson both have, but I can get involved other ways. I go and I talk to people at the store. I get to meet my neighbors and members of my community. Campaigns are expensive because they're making it expensive by buying ads to attack each other. Um, I oppose campaign finance laws. I feel as an individual, if you wanna donate your life savings to a candidate you believe in, that should be your right and your prerogative. And, but campaigns don't have to be expensive. And I hope to prove that in November. If I win, I will have spent less money than both of them. So uh, thank you. All right, well, thank you for that. Uh, so now we're going to closing statements, and we will start with <clears throat> Deb Patterson. Well, again, thank you so much for the opportunity to be with you today. Um, in closing, just let me say this. Uh, when I was a young student chaplain in a hospital that primarily served the uninsured, I, I learned a lot of lessons. I learned that unequal access to care meant health care outcomes that were wildly divergent. The man who couldn't afford diabetes care lost his limbs, all of them. I could give you myriad other examples. I learned that sometimes our public policies make suffering worse. I saw this when I sat with a young man dying from a mysterious disease whose partner was kept from the room because he was not legally recognized as his spouse. This was early in the AIDS pandemic. That's why I went back to school after seminary and studied health administration at Washington University School of Medicine. That's why I've worked for years to try to get people access to care. That's why I'm running for office today. When you've seen the inequities and the suffering that I have over 30 years in ministry, you want to do everything you can to address that need. 
In this next session, I want to help kids and teachers get safely back to school with adequate COVID-19 testing. I want to be sure the OHA can quickly distribute a safe vaccine for this virus when it's ready and not have the same problems that occurred with the distribution of the testing and the PPE. I'm convinced that had the legislature stayed at its post this past February, we would have not, we would have taken more steps to prevent the kind of wildfire damage we saw here this September. I'm convinced that we might have had a more coordinated response to COVID had legislature, legislators worked together to plan. I'm convinced that if we had moved forward then, with help for the homeless that business owners and other residents alike would have also benefited. But now it's the time to move forward. Members of the Salem City Club, I'm grateful for the opportunity to meet with you today. I believe that my proven record as a strong leader who will show up and work hard for an organ that leaves no one behind is what is needed in State Senate District 10 today. Thank you. Thank you, Deborah. Uh, Taylor, you're, you're next. Thank you again so much for having me, Hans, and everybody that decided to take some time out of their day to attend. I appreciate you giving me a chance to speak. Um, I'm not going to have the government experience of Senator Bowles or the life experience of Reverend Patterson. I'm 29, but I'm just an average Oregonian. You know, I'm not going to have the endorsements. I don't have the campaign finances that neither of my opponents have, but I'm honest. I'm, I'm full of integrity and I'm ready to serve the people of Senate District 10. So um, again, thank you so much for having me and I yield. Uh, next, we will go to Senator Bowles. Thank you. Thank you again for providing this opportunity. I came to the legislature uh, at a time where our state and our nation are undergoing an incredible amount of political um, unrest. And I think everybody on this panel would agree that this has been a really tough time to run for office. And there's been a lot said about me, both here and other places, about what happened in the 2020 uh, legislative session. Let me tell you about the 2020 legislative session. I came into the legislature because I work well with people. I work across the aisles, I make good relationships, I'm willing to do the hard work and be a diligent um, team player. And that's what I expected to have. Even in a super minority, I thought there are so many things we share, things around foster care, opioid addiction, public safety, schools. I can work with Democrats and we're gonna get this done. What happened in the breakdown that I watched in the last two years was an unprecedented abuse of power. And what happened in 2020, first of all, all the wildfire things that you're hearing that I, you know, am responsible for, it was, um, it was a bill that was going to allow for conversations that were going to end sometime here in September and will not be implemented until after the long session in 2021. So there really was no relevancy on the current situation. That was 20 years of mismanagement by um, the, really the Democrat Party in the state of Oregon. So that being said, we came to the legislature in 2020, ready to work, ready to pass legislation, but all that was held hostage by the cap and trade bill. And that bill had bipartisan opposition and no bipartisan support. And so what happened was an incredible moment of saying, this is enough. We are going to stand up for our communities and the working families in Senate District 10 and across the state of Oregon 
to put an end to this abuse of power by a one, one party system. So I'm running in a really tough time with a lot of really hateful things that are being said to me and my family, because I believe that we can do better as Oregonians and have a balance of power in the legislature is important to future conversations. So I really hope you support me and I appreciate this opportunity. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. Uh, we will now go to questions from the audience. And so far we have two raised hands and one question answer, uh, one typed in. So uh, with that, I will start with the raised hand and first we'll take Brian Hines. Hello, Brian. Uh, I don't think we can hear you yet. Need mute. There we go. Okay, there. Okay. Yep. Uh, a question for Senator Bowles. Uh, Senator Bowles, you've received many thousands of dollars of campaign contributions from the fossil fuel and, and logging industries, including the Koch brothers, Chevron, BP, Tessero, and Weyerhaeuser. How did that influence your decision to participate in the Republican walkout last February to prevent passage of important legislation to address the climate emergency, which recently has destroyed entire communities in Oregon? Um, so are you asking me that people's contributions somehow um, caused me to act in a way that I didn't believe in philosophically was the best decision for my community? Because if that's the case, that is not true. I said, I take a lot of contributions from a lot of people, as you are well aware, it's very expensive to run for the hottest Senate seat in the state of Oregon. But um, that is just um, a way for me to keep my voice out there and my message going strong. I made the decision because of the jobs that were at stake and the inability for the majority party to mitigate that impact on working families, not only the jobs, but the cost to electricity, the cost to gas, all of these things, and we talk about clean energy jobs, which I'm hugely supportive of, but they are not ready today. So we were going to put entire sectors of this state out of work, and many of them in places that you could not, they could least afford to be put out of work. And so, um, you know, so those are some of the things that played in. I was very, very hopeful until the very last minute that we were gonna have an opportunity to have um, a legislation that we could live with maybe not perfect, maybe not everything I would want, but I've voted on a lot of things that are less than perfect and that's what you do when you're in the legislature. But when you add someone to um, the committee in order to move it out, because you don't have the support of your own party to move it out, that is called political manipulation. And so those are the things that led to this breakdown in the session, so, you know, and I am, I hope I never see something like that again, because it does not do the people of this state any good. But thanks, Brian, for this, the opportunity to respond on that. Thank you. Uh, Russ Beaton has a question. Please unmute. There we go. Can you hear me? We can hear you. Thank you, Hans. Uh, recently, last couple of weeks or so, the revenue forecast came out from the state economist's office. Uh, as an economist myself, I was a little surprised that it was as high as positive as it was, um, because the, the word was the revenue gap that was um, that showed up in the last uh, offer, uh, the last report last spring was pretty much made up. And that surprised me, given that uh, unemployment is still quite high in the state. Well, a little thought though suggests that 
given our reliance on the, um, the personal income, income tax, um, what has happened is the middle and higher income people really haven't been hurt as much by the, uh, the coronavirus, by the pandemic. In fact, the way it occurred um, created a, a great loss of income in lower and moderate income people. And they're the ones that, because they're not in the higher brackets, don't pay a lot of the taxes. Now, here's my question. This suggests that uh, this, this um, recession, almost unlike anything before in our history, has really created much more inequality. Going into the next session, this coming spring, this suggests that spending needs to be angled much more than in the past, perhaps, toward social safety net uh, expenditures that, that help people who are down and out, because there are more that are down and out than we have ever had before. I will ask all three of you, uh, should you go into the session, how will that affect your um, response to the budget priorities? Good. Who wants to take that? And can I take this one first? Certainly. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Russ. Um, appreciate the question. Um, so what I would like to see happen first and foremost is the income tax is probably the most unfair tax that's in the state of Oregon. Um, I would like to replace it with a flat tax that benefits everyone equally, a flat sales tax, as opposed to some people losing up to 20% of their paycheck or more. Um, so I would hope that we could implement something like that to prevent further. Um, also, I would focus the budget that we have now and cut some wasteful spending that we have and focus it on what needs to be done, taking care of those most vulnerable that lost their jobs because of coronavirus. I hope that satisfies your answer. Senator or Reverend, are you want to answer this to one go. too? Yeah, this is Deb. I'm happy to speak to that. Um, right, you know, um, Dr. Beaton, the, the Boston Globe recently reported that this is the most uneven um, recession that in the history of our nation, as you mentioned, completely, um, the, most of the burden of this recession has been borne by those who are um, not within the middle or upper class or more, more wealthy Americans. And so I would continue to fight for the things that I've been fighting for is access to affordable health care for all. A lot of folks who lost their jobs also lost their health insurance. And so I'd like to make sure that it's affordable for everyone who needs it. Um, we also need to help folks be able to afford their childcare, such a desperate need right now. Um, as you know, there are almost 50,000 fewer uh, kids for aged birth through five in the last 10 years. It's so expensive for families and that was before this this uh, recession hit. Um, we need to make sure that everybody can afford their housing and then we, I would like to see us work on trying to continue to move that minimum wage up. I know that the money that the stimulus money that's come to help through the CARES Act has been helped helping to bolster our economy but um, yeah there's much we can, there's much that can be done. Thank you. Senator Bowles. 
You know, Russ, I was, I think all of us in the legislature were surprised by the revenue forecast and uh, delightfully surprised um, at this point. I think that it'll be interesting to see where we are in the next forecast. Uh, I think there's been some things that have happened within our state, uh, some of the federal money coming in that has maybe given us a false sense of where we're at. So we'll, I'll be looking at that closely. With regards to going into 2021, we still expect this to be a really tough uh, budget year. Unfortunately for us, the uh, 2019 budget, uh, we expanded government to really unsustainable levels in a booming economy. And while no one could have predicted what ha has happened in the last, uh, last year here in 2020, it's gonna have a huge effect. So we're gonna have to go back, look at core services, make sure we have the safety nets for the most vulnerable and really get our economy back started. You know, things around, you know, decreasing the regulation, you know, getting the, some of the COVID stimulus money into the hands of these small businesses so that they can sustain and put people back to work. All of those things will help give us the revenue so that we can continue to, um, to fund the priorities of the government here in Oregon. Thank you. Um, next, we'll take a question. Well, actually there's one here. Uh, it, it's anonymous. To Taylor Rickey, you mentioned overburdening taxes. How do you expect to address the failing infrastructure, pandemic, fires, drought, climate change, et cetera, without raising taxes? Taylor? Oh, sorry about that. How do I expect to handle crumbling infrastructure, pandemic? Um, what was the other ones? Oh, just a second, let me get back. You mentioned overburdening taxes. How do you expect to address the failing infrastructure, pandemics, fires, drought, climate change, et cetera, without raising mm -hmm. taxes? Oh. We don't, I would, like I mentioned before uh, to Russ, um, I would want to see a fair flat tax. I feel like that would be the best way to generate revenue and eliminate our income tax. Um, I also think that we need to cut back on a lot of wasteful spending in the, in the whole state. Um, so we could then focus that money to the infrastructure. Um, as far as the coronavirus, we have the federal aid coming in that can help alleviate some of that. Um, and wildfires, um, like I mentioned before, that would be, this is, uh, Sensible forest management. Uh, thank you. Okay, uh, next we, I will take one from Bill Dalton. He did have his hand raised, but not anymore. So I, I will just read it. Um, our candidates for Senator District Number 10 have spoken in favor of bipartisanship. What specific ways would you use to make bipartisan action possible in these partisan political times? Could I speak to that? Certainly. I'd love I'd love to address that, um, uh, Bill. That's a great question. You know, sorry, I'm looking at your name, which is not. Uh, yes, um, you know, I'm a member of the Downtown Salem Rotary Club. I have been for years, and we have Republicans and Democrats and Independents and others in there, and we work together to get things done. Um, the same thing is in, in, true in the churches I've served and the organizations I've led. Republicans, Democrats, independents, and others, libertarians, and, and Taylor Rickey has, has, um, is so such a fine man that, you know, why wouldn't we work together? Of course, we're going to work together. We've got to. And so, honestly, that's the Oregon way, and let's just, let's just do it. 
Anybody else want to tackle that? Yeah, if I may. Please. Hi. Uh, this is a great question. Um, the, but I would like to correct you. It's not bipartisanship, it's tripartisanship. And even more than that, we have multiple political parties and a lot of them don't feel represented. represented. We have Greens, Independents, Constitutionalists, Libertarians, Republicans, Democrats, and just regular non-affiliated voters. Um, we need to reach solutions that work for all Oregonians. Um, I'm sure Senator Bowles and Reverend Patterson are like myself and we all want what's best for Oregon. So regardless of what uh, letter is next to our name, we all want the best. So we have to put that aside and work together through whichever means. Senator, do you want to comment? I do. Uh, Taylor and Reverend Patterson are on the, um, they're faster on the mark here. I was trying to get my, my camera on. Um, thank you, Bill, for the question. I, you and I have had a lot of conversations around this and I, um, I think of it often uh, every day because what we're seeing in, in Oregon is we don't have partisan problems. They don't need partisan solutions. And I, and we'll continue to work for ways to work with, you know, across the aisle. I have co-sponsored lots of legislation with Democrats across the aisle. We've worked together on other issues, you know, within the legislature right now, human nature just seems to take over when you have such an incredible disparity in power. And that is what's different about the legislature, that's different about uh, Rotary or community gatherings or churches. It's, it's driven on power. And so I believe that when you have this incredible disparity, it's incumbent upon the party in power to create a table that we can all come to. We can all share and listen to each other and maybe incorporate other people's ideas into getting better legislation for the whole state. So I, that's been in my heart. That's why I came to the legislature. Despite some of these setbacks, I will continue to press forward because our community and the people in the state deserve that kind of commitment. Thank you. Um, next, uh, I think the, uh, I should mention there are only two raised hands and then there's one written question here. So I will go to, I will read the written, um, no, I will go to Cindy Condon. Please unmute. Good afternoon. Given the likely Supreme Court change and a possible reversal of Roe versus Wade, the right of women to seek an abortion may be governed by the state. Are you in favor, this is to all of the candidates, are you in favor of legislation limiting the right to access abortion services to women and why? Who wants to take that? I'll be happy to take that. No, I'm not in favor of legislation limiting um, a woman's right to reproductive health care or any other person's right to reproductive health care. Um, and I've been endorsed by Planned Parenthood and NARAL, and I, I stand by that. Uh, Taylor or yes. Senator? Oh, go ahead, Denise. Well, uh, Denise, uh, please go. Um, thank you. That's a good question. And I actually am in favor of those decisions being made by states, simply because I am a very uh, regional state kind of decision maker. Um, I like um, that option. Um, everyone here knows that I consider myself pro-life. I believe that life begins at conception. And this is more than just a out of, um, 
out there thought. Um, I believe that life is always a good thing to support and stand by, even when it's difficult. And so I have the experience of being married to somebody whose mother was 19 years old, without a high school education, on welfare, all the things that we say are reasons why someone should have an abortion. And everything great in my life is due to his life. And so it's much more than just a policy question. You're dealing with not just a mother, not just a father, but a child. And all three of those people have something to contribute to this state, to this nation, and to this world. And so I will err on the side of supporting that and supporting um, all the women out there that are finding themselves in difficult situations, which I have done time and time again um, on a personal level. So this will be something uh, that we'll discuss as a state. And I know that you know, Oregon is the most pro-abortion state in the nation. I don't expect that to change anytime soon. But for me and my values, this is really important and we protect and value the life that we've been so fortunate to be given. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, next, I'm going to read a question from Michael Williams. I think this is directed towards Taylor, probably, and, and maybe one of the I don't think Taylor got a chance to ask his answer. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I miss? Uh, please, go ahead. Yes, sorry about that. Um, <clears throat> so regarding abortion, um, personal feelings aside, it is not the government's job, one way or the other. I would like to see a Liz I Fair approach when it comes to abortion regardless of your pro-life or pro-choice, it's not the government's job to dictate. That's between a woman and her doctor. Um, everything else is irrelevant. So I would oppose any restrictions of, on abortion because it's not the government's job. Thank you. So now I will get to Michael Williams. Do you have examples of what you consider wasteful spending? Uh, probably directed towards you, Taylor, first, and maybe the others want to tackle it also. So, Taylor? Perfect. I don't have my specific examples in front of me. However, um, I do have a wife who works for the state, and the stories that she tells me are harrowing, uh, where contractors will charge 10 times as much because they know it's the state, and it will go and it will get paid regardless. I believe the private sector always has the best prices as opposed to state funding um, projects. Um, one example is my wife who is a, who works in the state, um, they have Band-Aids with expiration dates where they need to buy $10 boxes of Band-Aids um, because they're expired, even though they're not used. Uh, this is a, one example of wasteful spending on top of m multiple others um, where we pay to have committees formed instead of tackling problems. We talk about problems. Um, we need more solutions than less talking. Anybody else? Senator, Deb, okay. Uh, uh, could okay. I just, whoops. Could I just say that, you know, my 30 years of work running a nonprofit and, um, you know, being the leader of a congreg of several congregations, that's, that's good preparation for being a good steward of limited resources. They all have limited resources. And I really um, would love to make sure that we're st we stay on top of our audits of our spending. So you bet I'll be watching. Um, but I also have a track record of being a good steward of limited resources. So that's what I'd like to add to the conversation. I don't, I don't think we need wasteful spending. I agree with that. Thank you. Uh, 
So, yeah, thank you. Um, I just would like to echo, I think we're going to have to look at agency by agency and, and see, get back to core functions of government, things around our education, things around infrastructure, um, things that apply to everybody's everyday life and that the government is critical to be part of that. There are a lot of things that the government does that can be done by the community members that we all live and serve with, by businesses, by nonprofits, by churches, um, by families. And we're gonna have to really take a look at that because the government is overreached and taken on way more than it needs to be doing going forward. Thank you. Uh, here's another written question uh, from an anonymous attendee. How do the federal trade policies affect Oregon business? And what would you do to assist businesses, small and large, especially in manufacturing? Um, who wants to take that? First, anybody? Um, I'm just going to be honest. Um, that's not something I've studied, so I don't want to give you an inaccurate answer, but it is something I would look into, and I would be happy to study up on it. Senator? Sure. Um, you know, things that are happening at the federal government obviously impact all of us here in Oregon, and I am not going to uh, get into specifics of all the trade policies um, that the government, the federal government does. But I know that as Oregonians, we need to be really careful when we make policies and working with federal government to make sure that we're still competitive in a um, national and global uh, capacity. And so some of these um, federal, you know, I'd be willing to talk and lobby our federal delegation around making things easier for our manufacturing and our exporting and importing of the state. But as far as, you know, it's a federal, those are, those are federal policies that I don't have any control over. Thank you. And could I just add, you know, I mean, I, some of the federal tariffs right now that are in place are hurting our agricultural markets. And so I, I'm really grateful that we have congressional leadership from Oregon here who is advocating for our, uh, for our agricultural um, uh, bar, for our small family farms and, and our larger farms. Also, tourism has been greatly impacted by the coronavirus. Um, and while that's not a federal trade policy, I do believe that federal policy has negatively impacted our response to COVID. And so that's impacting our, our economy here as well. So that's what I would say to that question. Thank you. And here's a question from RKA Chadurian. I hope I said that right. What is your solution to the homeless crisis? A quick, easy question there. <laughs> Who will start? Uh, I'll go ahead and take, I can lead if you want on this one, unless Deb. All right. Um, <laughs> I do not have a solution per se to the homeless crisis. If it was that simple, it would be dealt with already. Um, I believe that it's going to take compassion from the communities and we need to get the government out of trying to solve homelessness. Oftentimes government, uh, they set out to help people and they hurt more than they hurt those they intend to help. Um, I believe we need to be able to take our money and use it for the Union Gospel Mission, other, uh, other businesses and charities to help. Um, they can do it faster, more efficiently, and quite and uh, better than the government. So I would, um, I would help with maybe uh, letting the private charities handle the homeless problem instead of making it a government problem. Thank you, Taylor. And since we just have a little bit of time left, uh, I, I need to give Senator and Deb uh, a crack at that one. 
Oh, yeah, I'd like to say that this is one area where our federal policy has greatly impacted it. And it's the Salem City Councilors um, are, all, are taking a lot of heat for the folks who are living without housing on the streets, but their, their work is made more difficult by the fact that HUD has been defunded by 75% since the Reagan era. And so we need to work with our congressional leaders to make sure that we re restore funding to HUD to help make some dollars available. We need to work at every level from the neighborhood association to city councilors, county commissioners, Oregon state legislators and our congressional delegation to make sure that we, I don't think that charity is going to solve the homeless problem. It's certainly needed. We always need charity, but it can't be the major focus on how we address the problem. The, the not, it's, not there, it's not a problem for, yes, it's a problem, but we have to help these people and we have to help each other. We have to work together to address Thank the you, issue Jennifer. of folks living without housing. Senator? So I'm not interested in waiting on the federal government to solve our community's problems. I think there are things that we're already doing. Um, I've worked really hard with Community Action, for example, to make sure that Portland doesn't absorb all of the funding mechanisms that are going to um, housing needs and in, in the communities around the state. Um, I also think we need to spend some time, really serious time, we're woefully underfunding and not supporting our uh, teens and uh, early 20s in that transition period. Um, statistics show that if you're homeless is at that age, it's really hard to turn that around. I've tried to sponsor legislation to provide um, foster kids kind of a first, the, the first um, step of having a stable place to live when they come out of foster care through no uh, fault of their own. And just even trying to get that off the ground has been hard with all the different regulations and political stuff that's happening within the Capitol is kind of ironic and frustrating. Unfortunately, with uh, the homeless, you have a sector of people, we got to start looking at them in the different groups. But there's always a small section that are not interested in being helped and they're adults and you cannot make them move off the streets. Um, you sh certainly should continue to try and provide services and resources. But we have to start looking at things on a very detailed individual level and engaging all the pieces um, as, as Taylor said, you know, our union gospel mission, you know, other transitional housing and really um, putting aside everybody's little um, power structures to solve the problems for the people in this community. Thank you very much. And with that, uh, we are through with the questioning and uh, we'll need to close the program. Uh, thank you once again, all three of you for coming to, uh, coming to City Club and responding to all those great questions and tough ones at that too. So thank you very much. We really appreciate your, your, your presence here. Thank you for the uh, opportunity. And, uh, our president will give the final notes. Thank you. Thanks everybody for your participation. Good questions from the audience today, I thought, and uh, good questions from our, our candidates. We appreciate you taking the time to uh, meet with us today. Um, Please join us uh, next week uh, when we will hear from the, uh, just a second. Next Friday, we will hear from the candidates for Marion County Commissioner uh, position three. There, were, there are two candidates, Danielle Bethel, who is a Republican, and Ashley Carson Cottingham, who is running for the uh, Democrats. So, Join us, sign up today, and uh, we'll send you reminders and
Uh, thank you for joining us today. Thanks. Bye.